I think there's a lot of things in our life that sometimes we experience so often and just are so common that we just kind of take them for granted. Uh, One thing I think we take for granted is the ability to just communicate with other people and for other people to hear us. I can't imagine what it would be like to not be able to communicate with other people, that people wouldn't be able to hear just kind of the basic things that we need, things like, I'm hungry, I'm tired. And maybe some of us have been in that situation, maybe experienced a severe illness or a surgery, and you were in a place where you just kind of couldn't communicate what you needed, people couldn't understand what you were saying, and you just kind of felt helpless there. Well, there's one guy who experienced that for an extended period of time. His name was Martin Pistorius, and uh, he actually wrote a book called Ghost Boy, uh, which very inter- I haven't read it myself, but it seems like it'd be a very interesting uh, book based on his story. Martin Pistorius, he was 12 years old, and he went to school, and he ex- started experiencing kind of flu symptoms, sore throat, uh, runny nose. It wasn't COVID. It happened a long time ago, long before COVID. But he's having these flu symptoms, and he goes home, and he gets really, really, really sick. Um, So sick that he just kind of starts to lose, you know, his bodily functions. He can't, you know, move. He he gets to a point where he can't talk, and it's just kind of this mysterious disease. Uh, Doctors kind of theorized what they thought it might have been, but they weren't quite sure. And he's in and out of the hospital for about a year, and basically they send him home with his parents and say, you know, he's in rough shape. Uh, he's probably got about two years left. Just make him comfortable. And, you know, he, again, he can't move. They said his, his brain was like the brain of a three-month-old. You know, there wasn't a whole lot that was going on in the, his brain. And so he just kind of sat there. And they would, you know, take him to, you know, a daycare. And they'd put him in front of Barney. And he would just sit there with this blank stare all day long watching them. Well, when he turned 16, about, about the time when he was turning 16, something started to change in his brain. Uh, for some reason, his brain, the neurons, started to come back together. And he started to kind of drift into consciousness. It wasn't long before he was fully you know, aware. That is, he could see everything that was going on. He could understand what, everything that was going on. But he couldn't move, and he couldn't say anything couldn't even move his eyes very much. And so he would sit there and he would try to work up the strength to kind of gesture to someone to show that like he was, he was listening, that he was aware. But with all of his strength, he might, you know, think that he was moving a lot and his hand would just move a tiny, tiny bit. And so he, he sat there and they continued to bring him to, uh, you know, this daycare. He's watching Barney all day and he knows exactly what's going on, but he can't tell anybody what's happening. And he was like that for 12 years. From the time he was 12 years old to about 25 years old, he's just there kind of as a ghost, knowing what's going on. Everybody else is talking around him, but he can't communicate. Nobody can hear him. Finally, uh, miraculously, there was a therapist who was working with him when he was 25 years old and was talking to him. And she just kind of, I think it was, she looked at his eyes and could see his eyes moving and knew that there was more going on than people thought. And uh, after that, they went and did a number of tests and they were able to give him a device that allowed him to communicate with other people. And he actually went on to to have a a very normal life and got married, became a father, um, and eventually his story turned around. But I can't imagine what it would be like to be in that circumstance where you can't do anything. Nobody can hear what you're saying. 
And we all have this need and desire to be heard by those around us. Um, and when we're not heard by those around us, it can lead us to destruction. Uh, in relationships, psychologists can predict when a relationship is in trouble by observing a behavior called stonewalling. Uh, stonewalling is beyond the occasional silent treatment to a persistent failure of one or both parties to listen to the other. When one or both parties feel like they're not heard by the other, and it often spells the end of a relationship. Not being understood, not being heard can be downright deadly. It can lead many people to commit suicide. And uh, sometimes even when, not always, but sometimes when people attempt suicide, it's kind of a, a cry for help. To, Does anybody hear me? Is anybody listening to my struggle, to my pain? There's a guy by the name of Don Ritchie, and he lived for years uh, in, uh, in Australia by this place called the Gap, which was um, this big ocean cliff. And it was a big tourist destination, but it was also a place where people would go to end their lives. Um, and it was estimated that about 50 people a year would come and, and end their lives at this particular cliff. So what he would do is he would go out there almost daily and see these people that were about to end their lives. And what he would do, would, he, he would just say, hey, do you want to come over to my house and have a cup of tea? And more often than not, they would say, okay. So they'd go over to his house, and, you know, he wasn't functioning as a therapist. He wasn't asking probing questions. He just made him a cup of tea and just listened to their story, heard what they had to say. And miraculously, numbers of them decide to change their mind, decide to go home rather than to commit suicide. Um, the one estimate, official estimate was 160 people whom he saved just by having a cup of tea with them. And his family suggested it was about 400 people that he saved just by hearing their story. We all long to be heard. We all long to be understood. So we get to 1 Kings. Uh, if you've been tracking with us, we skipped a number of chapters here. We skipped basically chapters 4 to 8. Uh, in chapters 4 to 8, um, Solomon is, is in the process of building the temple, um, and he's engaged in kind of, it's very intricate in what he's doing and he's getting timber getting lumber getting artisans together all that needs to come together for this great temple of god to be built then in chapter eight the temple is uh, just about completed and he prays a prayer to god consecrates it and then we're the what we just read in chapter eight uh verse 22 was the prayer that he prays to god and that's kind of where i want to focus today for just a couple minutes and in this prayer, we see a word that's repeated eight times, and there's other words that are kind of synonyms that are repeated a number of times as well. And the word that's repeated again and again is the word here. If you had to summarize Solomon's prayer, it would be a prayer that God would hear or that God would listen. Now, how does that relate to the temple? Now, when we think about the temple of God, uh, at least when I've always thought about the temple, I think about the temple as kind of related to worship. You know, if you think about all the, the things in the Old Testament related to, you know, the bronze basin and the sacrifices and all those things that were involved in the temple and the, and, and the worship in the temple. You know, you think about today, and now the church is, is different than the temple. Uh, there's a lot of differences between the Old Testament temple and the church today. But even the church, you know, we think about coming together and singing songs, worshiping, hearing God's word uh, spoken. And so I always thought about the temple and the first word that came to my mind was worship. But I think maybe a better word that kind of encapsulates what the temple is all about is a word that Jesus used. That word is prayer. Remember when Jesus threw out the money changers in the temple? 
Look at what he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 17. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. It's my house. The temple shall be called a house of prayer. The temple, before it was a place of worship, was a place of prayer. It was a place where man interfaced with God, where God revealed himself, where his presence uh, kind of didn't dwell in, the, in a literal sense. You know, the writers of Scripture, many of them recognize, you know, nothing can contain the presence of God. It's not like God could dwell in a house, but God chose to meet with people in that location of the temple. And there's a lot of theology related to the temple, and try to track with me because I think we're going somewhere very important here, but you think about the temple, and, and the first temple that was ever created was creation. The created order is a sanctuary for the living God, where God chose to interface with human beings, to reveal himself to mankind. Isaiah 6, 3, uh, Isaiah speaking of a vision that he sees, says, holy, holy, or the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so creation was the first temple or the first sanctuary. And you see, in the creation of the temple that we saw in 1 Kings chapter 4 to 8, we see many similarities between the creation of the universe and the creation of the temple. For example, uh, the earth was created in seven days. The temple was created in seven years. Uh, there's similarities between the way that uh, the temple integrates light and darkness into its structure. There's uh, creation images inside of the temple. Remember Adam and Eve, they had the presence of God. God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But what we see in the scriptures is oftentimes when we think about the presence of God, the presence of God is conditional. It's conditional. You know, we see that in, with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in the garden that God created for them. God walks with them in the cool of the day. But then God, uh, then they sin against God, and they're exiled from that garden. They no longer experience the presence of God like they did in that garden. They no longer experience that intimacy. God doesn't abandon them, but he doesn't meet with them in the same way. Then you get to the idea of the temple, and the temple was very conditional. There were only certain people that could go into the Holy of Holies, the priest, the high priest, only one time a year. And then there was just kind of different distinctions, so how far you could go into the temple. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God meets with Israel, makes a covenant with Israel, and says, I'm going to be your God, and in return, you have to be faithful to me. You have to keep my laws, keep my commandments. And what he does is they, God enters into an ancient covenant, and he, he, there's a covenant ceremony in Exodus chapter 20, also repeated in Deuteronomy. And it's that relationship. I'll be your God. I'm going to go before you, but you've got to be faithful to me. And then there was terms of that covenant. There was blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. It's spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 1 to 2. It says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord and your, uh, and your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these things, all these curses shall come upon you and shall overtake you. Blessings, for obedience, curses, for disobedience. Let's repeat just again 
what Solomon prays for in verses 46 to 49. If they sin against you, Israel, for there is no one who does not sin, and if you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away, captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to you toward the land which you have given to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. This is a remarkably bold prayer. It's a remarkably bold prayer because they're in a covenant relationship. And so the curse for, there's a curse for disobedience. If Israel did what was wrong, the just punishment for that was they would experience these things. They would experience defeat at the hands of their enemies. The temple would be destroyed. The, the kind of position that they had as Israel would kind of be lessened. And so there was punishments for disobedience. And yet what Solomon is praying here is he's basically praying, will you hear us even if we fail you? We, will you hear us even if we go into idolatry? Even if we sin against you every step of the way and then we turn around and repent, will you still hear us? It's kind of like, a, you know, a child. And you tell, you tell the child, don't touch the china. Because if you touch the china, you might break it. And so if you touch the china, there's going to be a consequence. We're not going to go out for ice cream. To which the child responds, so let's be honest. You know I'm going to touch the china. And if I touch the china, there's a good chance I could break it. But let's say I do that. Let's say I touch the china. Let's say I break the china. And then I'm really sorry for it. And I say, I tell you I'm really sorry. Then maybe could you change your mind. Maybe we could still go for ice cream. Now, in one sense, you tell them, no, like, just follow what I said. And then we don't have to worry about it. And I think that's what Solomon is requesting. He's making this incredibly audacious request. Will you still hear us after we fail you? And what's God's response? His response is a little bit ambiguous, but look at what he says. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, it says, And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated the house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes, my heart will be there for all time. So he says that to Solomon, I've heard your prayer. My presence is going to be in this temple for all time. But then on the other hand, after that, he says, if you fail, if you or your sons uh, fail, if Israel goes astray, then the temple is going to be destroyed. People are going to look at that temple and say, what happened to Israel? Why did God abandon them? And so how can it be both? It seems in the one sense he's saying, I'm going to answer your prayer. And on the next, in the next sentence, he's like, no, I'm not going to answer the prayer. Well, I've struggled with this a lot. I think uh, I think I kind of can understand what's, uh, what God is communicating here. And I think what is at the heart of it is God is kind of ambiguous in his response, just kind of like a parent might be ambiguous in their response to that kind of request. See, God made a covenant again with Israel, and that was a conditional covenant. That conditional covenant he made with them at Mount Sinai, that they had to keep the law, that they would be a light to the nations, that God would reveal himself through Israel. 
that they were the ones that had the law. They would have the temple. They would be God's special chosen people. And their place among the nations was, in a sense, conditional. If Solomon failed, which we know he's going to fail, if he failed, then eventually that temple was going to be destroyed. And we know eventually that temple is going to be destroyed. Sometime after Solomon, the, the people of Israel are going to be sent into exile. The temple is going to be destroyed. So in that sense, it's conditional. And so God tells him, if you sin, if your sons sin against me, then there's going to be consequences. So it's conditional in that, in that sense. But there's also a sense in which the presence of God is unconditional for Israel. See, God had made a covenant before he made a covenant at Mount Sinai. He made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, I'm going to bless you and make you into a great nation. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he also kind of repeats that covenant to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This isn't on the screen, but I'll read it to you. Look at what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Speaking of Solomon, God says this to David. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in a sense, that again, the, the Exodus covenant was conditional, but the promise that he made to David was unconditional. That even if your son fails me, which he's going to, I'm not going to take away my steadfast love for him. Even if your descendants fail me, I'm going to put a king before you, a king who will reign forever. And so ultimately, God's answer to this question, will you still hear us if we fail you, is a resounding yes. Because we see, again, that Israel fails. They're, they're sent into exile. The temple is destroyed. People look and say, what happened to the God of Israel? And in that moment, Israel is crying out to God. The faithful are crying out to God. Have you forgotten us? Will you restore us? There was a 400-year time when God didn't speak through the prophets, where it seemed like God wasn't listening. But then a baby was born in Bethlehem, whom the scriptures describe as the true temple. The true temple of God was born. In John chapter 1, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus was the bridge between God and man. And when Jesus came to the earth, he was the answer to Solomon's desire. He was the answer to that prayer. Even if you fail me, I'll still hear you. God, Jesus is the answer to that prayer. He communicates once and for all that even if you abandon me and return and repent, you can find life. Then after that, Jesus left the earth and he left us with his presence. And the scriptures refer to us one time in the scriptures it refers to us as individuals as the temple of the Holy Spirit, but many times it refers to us as the church, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God's presence chooses to dwell. 
And what that means for us as believers today is that God hears us. God hears each and every one of us. And he answered that prayer that Solomon prayed with a resounding, yes, I still hear you. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how far you stray, when you turn around and call upon me, I still hear you. Now, there's a few different kinds of hearing. You ever been talking to somebody, maybe you're sharing something that to you is really important. Maybe it's something about your day. Maybe it's a hope or dream that you have, or maybe it's something that you're just really struggling with. And as you're sharing it with them, you see that they're kind of preoccupied with something else. Maybe they're watching TV. Maybe they're playing on their phone. And as you're sharing your heart to them, they're just like, yep, uh-huh, yep, yep. And then you're getting a little bit frustrated. And you say, are you, are you listening to me? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm listening. And you know they're not really listening. You know, maybe the words are going through their ears. Maybe they're kind of comprehending part of it. But they're not listening uh, in just the way that you want them to listen. You don't feel like you're heard. Then on the other hand, you could have someone, maybe you second kind of listening. Maybe you're sharing something with someone and maybe they're sitting across the table from you having coffee with them and they're really listening. They're really engaged in what you're saying. And they're asking really probing questions and you can just tell they care about you. But as you talk, you realize they just, they don't understand what you're going through. I mean, they want to. They care about you. They're doing everything they can, but you realize they just don't understand. They haven't walked in your shoes. And there's the third kind of listening. You share your heart, you're listening, and the person that you're talking to is listening intently. And not only are they listening intently, but they've experienced exactly what you've experienced. And they look you straight in the eye and they tell you, it's all right. It's okay. We're going to get through this. God brought me through this. God's going to bring you through it. That's a different kind of hearing and being heard. I think there's some of us here, maybe all of us to a certain extent, and that feel like nobody hears us. Maybe some of us feel like no one even cares enough to listen to us. Maybe some of us feel like we have people around us that care about us, that love us, that support us, but they, they just don't know what they're going, that we're going through. I mean, they try. They do nice things. They ask the right questions. They just don't understand what we're going through. Some of us experience things that are incredibly difficult. Some of us have lost perhaps a child, a spouse, a sibling, a parent, a grandparent. Maybe some of us have dealt with a difficult upbringing. We've experienced things we've never should have had to experience. Things that nobody else understands. Maybe we've made a lot of mistakes. Maybe we've made a lot of mistakes that we can't undo. Things that just kind of feel like they're over our head. Maybe we're afraid to get close to other people because we feel like if we get close to other people, they'll see who we really are. Maybe some of us struggle with mental illness, whether it's anxiety or depression. And it's just been eating us up inside or maybe some other mental illness. And maybe perhaps our well-meaning friends tell us, well, just cheer up. You don't need to be sad anymore. Or just don't worry. You don't have anything to worry about. But they don't know the pain that we're experiencing. There's good news, and that good news is God hears us today. He knows what you're going through. He knows what I'm going through. He knows that better than anybody else has. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. God hears each and every one of us. He understands what we are going through. We started off talking about things that we take for granted and the fact that we sometimes take for granted just the simple things, being able to communicate with someone else, being heard for just the simplest things that we need or desire. And I think sometimes maybe we take for granted the relationship that we have with God in prayer. The fact that God's presence lives inside of us. The fact that we have access to him every time, anytime, night or day. That we can call on him knowing that he hears us. Sometimes I think we take that for granted. There's a story of a king who was holding a kingly court. And he had his noblemen and, and officers. And they were all together and they were having a really important meeting. And as they were having the meeting, they heard something, a, a sound at the door. And a little child barged through the door, making all kinds of a ruckus. The officer went over to the little boy. He says, don't you know that you're disturbing the counsel of the king? The little boy looked at him and says, he's your king, but he's my daddy. The boy went over and ran into the open arms of his father, the king. The child of a king outranks any nobleman, officer, or advisor. That's the position that we have before God. That's the access that we have to his throne, that we can come to him with anything that's on our heart, knowing that he hears us, knowing that he understands what we're going through. We all struggle with prayer. I think I've never met a Christian that said, oh, yeah, I got that prayer thing down. Anybody that I've ever met had at least some measure of struggle with prayer. And I wonder if part of the struggle is maybe we don't really believe that God hears us. Maybe we don't really believe that God hears us. So my son, Paul, who's just over two and a half years old, or about two and a half years old, um, so I'll put him to bed sometimes. And as I'm putting him to bed, I'll put him in his crib, and then I'll start to walk out the door, and he'll kind of test me. And he'll start crying, start whining, saying, Daddy. And, you know, you know there's nothing wrong. You know, he's eating, he's got a clean diaper, he's tired, and he just doesn't want to go to bed. So, you know, I'll, I'll walk out, shut the door, and literally, before I hit the first step to go downstairs, he stopped crying. Because he knows I'm not coming back. It's just that little interim where he just thinks, oh, maybe dad's going to come back. So he just stops crying. He doesn't cry after that. Goes to sleep. Then in the middle of the night, let's say he wakes up and he has a bad dream, or he's not feeling well. He wakes up, he might, you know, sit there. And even though I'm not there, even though my wife isn't there, he might cry out and say, Mama, Mama, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And he'll keep calling that out until we come. Because even though we're not there, we, you know, he knows we hear him. We know that he, he, he knows that we have that baby monitor, so we hear when he's crying out. I wonder how we approach God. What, describes, what picture describes your prayer life and mine? Do we give up when it seems like God has walked away? 
Or do we believe that he hears us even when we don't, uh, even when we don't see him? So I started out sharing the story of Martin Pistorius, the young boy who was stuck in his own body for 12 years, unable to communicate or be heard by anyone around him. And you would think someone like that would be incredibly bitter. Uh, you'd think they would, you know, be angry at God. And, you know, you'd think they'd ask questions like, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? But he didn't. And what was remarkable, it's not like he grew up in like a really strong Christian home. Uh, his family was kind of nominally Christian. Uh, they would go to church sometimes, but it wasn't like a, you know, super regular thing. But he found that as he experienced this darkness in his life, he felt like God was drawing closer than he had ever drawn before. Listen to what he says about the experience. He says, as I became fully aware, the only certainty I could cling to when so much didn't make sense was that God was with me. Without understanding the rules and structures of the church, without a concept of sin, the Bible, or repentance, I simply believed him. I can't explain it other than on the fringes of human experience. Perhaps I was in a place in which I didn't need theological teaching to understand faith. The people around me didn't know I existed. But God did. And I knew he existed. It was instinctual, not intellectual. I started praying to God. I couldn't clasp my hands or kneel, of course. But as I lay on a beanbag or sat strapped in a wheelchair to keep my useless torso upright, I started to talk to him. I prayed for someone to come and move my aching body. I prayed for him to keep my family safe. I prayed for some sign that one day I would be rescued from the silent world. Sometimes my prayers were answered. Sometimes they weren't. But when I felt disappointed and powerless, my conversations with God taught me that gratitude could sustain me. When the smallest prayer was answered, I gave thanks to the Lord. Caught in perhaps the most extreme isolation a person can ever experience, I grew ever closer to God. See, when no one else heard him, he rested in the fact that God heard him. And I think that's the comfort we have as believers in Christ, even if nobody else understands you. Even if nobody else understands or hears us, God hears us. He knows what we're going through, and we can come to him anytime, night and day. 1 John 5, 14 to 15 says this in closing. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the incredible answer to prayer that you do hear our cries. That even when we've walked away, we've all like sheep gone astray, turned to our own way, even when we walk away and turn around and call upon you, you hear us. Lord, we thank you that we have that relationship with you, that intimacy, that we can come to you with anything that we're experiencing, whether it's big, whether it's small, whether our lives are falling apart or we're on the height of the mountaintop. We can come to you knowing that you understand, knowing that you care, knowing that you hear us. Lord, I pray for those in our community today who are struggling, whether it's something financial, whether it's something physical, relational, whatever the case may be, God, I pray that you would meet with them today, that as they cry out to you, you'd give them a sense of your presence and your peace. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for being there for us no matter what. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.